welcome to Saga Thing, where we're putting the sagas of the Icelanders on trial. I'm John. And I'm Andy. Uh, this is the second part of our episode on Grettir's saga, so if you haven't heard the first part yet, you'll want to go back and listen to that before you jump into part two. Right. Well, on that episode, we covered the first 16 chapters of the saga. There's plenty of good stuff there. Um, there's the amazing story of Onan Treefoot. There's yeah. an epic battle on top of a whale carcass. Mm-hmm. And, of course, the flaying of a live horse. Wow. The flaying of a live horse, you say? Mm-hmm. When you When you put it like that, I can't imagine who'd want to miss it. Good stuff. Well, people who like horses might not enjoy it so much. And, and those with hmm. weak stomachs might want to hit fast forward here and there. But, uh, but okay. Why don't you get us started with a quick summary so we have a sense of what's about to happen? All right. We pick up the story just after Greta was outlawed from Iceland for the killing of Skeggy over a bag of food. In this episode, we follow Grettir through his glory days as he stalks around Norway battling monsters and beasts. There aren't many side characters to mention here because this is all about Grettir the Strong, doing things that a strong guy would do. Your bones will be chilled when Grettir enters the spooky mound of Car the Old and finds out that the undead don't give up their treasure without a fight. You'll be on the edge of your seat as Grettir wrestles a giant bear atop a steep cliff. And you'll quake with fear as you witness Greta going toe-to-toe with Iceland's most vicious revenant, Glaum. Will Greta have the strength to teach Glaum a lesson, or will Glaum get the better of our stalwart hero? Along the way, you'll meet a number of men whose names begin with Thor, the proud but cowardly Bjorn, and a mysterious young boy with a foul mouth. And who's that? Why, it's the sainted King Olaf Haraldsson, not Trygvason, here for a cameo. But never forget that this is Greta's show, and he's eager to flex those brawny muscles on his way to stardom. Will Greta ever reach those stars, or will he succumb to his own bad luck and ill temper? Join us as Saga Thing reviews Greta's Saga, chapter 17 to 46. There's so much good stuff in this episode. Yeah, there's far too much for us to cover, actually, mm-hmm. uh, which is something we're going to say a lot throughout this episode and the other Gretchen Saga episodes. <laughs> um, so we're going to be leaving a lot of stuff out. So don't get angry with us. Right. But we've chosen the best bits to share with you this time around. Exactly. In fact, uh, most of this episode is going to be about Gretter's famous monster fights. And if you like what you hear, you'll probably enjoy the saga brief that we'll be doing after we finish Gretir. Uh It will focus primarily on the three major episodes we're going to cover here, so make sure you pay attention to Gretir's adventures in this episode. Okay, um, let's get started. Okay. The Tale of Gretir's Sword I managed to get the cutlass that makes men's wounds grow in the mighty dark mound. Wave fire armor. The ghost fell, and the precious fire of the din of the armor of helmets, dangerous to men, would never pass far from my hand if I owned it. Now, we're going to cover... Uh, we're gonna, what are we... Sneak, nah, it's doodle. <laughs> wow, done. We're, yeah, thank you. Uh, if you play that backwards, it says... We're going to start with the story of how Grettir got his famous sword. Didn't we cover that last time? We said that Grettir's <laughs> mother gave him the renowned blade Atertangi before he left Iceland for outlawry for the first time. Well, his mother did give him Atertangi, but either Grettir or the author doesn't seem to appreciate the value of that sword very much beyond its connection to Vatnsdal saga. I mean, you'd think it would be a bigger deal. 
Sadly, however, Atertangis, it's largely passed over uh, in favor of another sword from this episode of Greta's life. Now, hang on, we're, we're getting ahead of ourselves a little bit. So yeah, after Greta leaves his parents, which is where we left off last time, he travels to Norway on a trading ship. Uh, mm-hmm. But it's not going to be smooth sailing for him. Or for Greta's shipmates that had to put up with him. No. Um, between flirting with one man's wife and composing sarcastic verses about everyone else, he makes himself so obnoxious that he's nearly thrown overboard by the ship's crew. And deservedly so. Yes. Uh, he, he refuses to help even in the direst of circumstances, which, to be fair, is in keeping with his character. Uh, Greta just doesn't feel like lending a hand to them, uh, ever. Well, okay, not never. I mean, at one point, uh-huh. the ship springs so many leaks that the crew exhaust themselves trying to bail the water off. And then, in a feat of strength, Greta single-handedly bails out the bilge and saves the ship. Okay, that's true, but I think we need to qualify that, John. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's not like he, he willingly lent a hand here. He was taunted into working by Hoflidi, the, the merchant who owned the ship. See, I'd prefer to say that Hoflidi inspired him to work. Mm. I would say he inspired Gretir to work by reminding him how the captain's wife had spent so much time taking care of Gretir, uh, something that the crew absolutely hated him for. Right, and there are suggestions that that relationship was more than just friendly, which explains mm-hmm. why the crew hates him so much. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and Gretir explains his only reason for helping now uh, in a poem. Let's stand up, though the waves roll fast beneath the ship. I know the lady would not like it if I lie down in the boat. The good, fair woman will be most displeased if I always let others do my work for me. I see, that's nice. That's a hint of romance from Gretter. Yeah. We don't get to see that softer side very much in the saga. Yeah, I suppose that's a pity, but he is talking about the wife of the ship's captain, which is hardly an appropriate target on a small boat for one's amorous affections. Hey, when Cupid's arrow strikes, it rarely misses, my friend. (laughs) But even if he single-handedly saved the ship, its cargo, and the crew, he's still not winning any popularity contests. They've just agreed not to kill him. No, no. They they stopped planning to kill him for now, but it doesn't really matter because it's not long after that the ship hits a rock off the coast of Norway and begins to sink. So uh, the, tri- the trip was doomed from the start. <laughs> Can't help it. Yeah, we're, we're really getting that sense early on that Gretter is not a lucky man. Right, and in the sagas, luck matters, and it's almost indistinguishable from success. I mean, remember what an important role Luck played in Vatensdal's saga. Thorstein just happened to kill a giant who invited him to marry his sister, who just happened to be a princess. Ingemund just happened to stumble into the best territory in northern Iceland and rise up to be one of the greatest chieftains. And Thorkel Scratcher just happened to be found after being abandoned as an infant by his father. And then he rose up to be an even better Gothi than Ingemund himself. Well, uh, I am not going to agree with that. Your general point may be good, but you're stretching on that last one. Better than Ingemund? Look, I'm I'm just quoting the last chapter of Vatensdal's saga. You take your complaints to the author. It's right now, there. Now, if Ingemann's family is one of the luckiest in Iceland's history, then Gretter has to be the unluckiest. Yeah. Um, now, whereas everything works itself out for the guys in Vatensdal's saga, everything kind of turns up rotten for poor Gretter no matter what he does. Maybe, but it just as often goes rotten simply because of what he does. I mean, his behavior from the very beginning of the saga is, at the very least, controversial. He may have his finer moments that you are going to point to and maybe his romantic leanings like we just saw. But this guy is a brute who likes to throw his weight around. It's not just that he's unlucky. I mean, the ship hitting a rock is unlucky, I think. Uh, but the horrible situations he <laughs> finds himself in, they're rarely just happenstance. 
This guy chooses not to work, John. He chooses to compose slanderous poetry about his shipmates. And he chooses to sleep with the captain's wife. Oh, wait a minute. Wait a minute. That's scurrilous rumor, sir. Hell, he even chose to get all ornery and kill Skeggy over that stupid food bag. I mean, his flawed character, more than anything, is what makes his life difficult. Okay, that's true. But I think one of the most remarkable things about Greta's characterization is that he seems to thrive without luck. As you say, luck is one of those things in the sagas that's almost indistinguishable from success. But mm-hmm. Gretter, he just bowls through life without it. And I might argue the flawed character you're talking about, that contrary nature that he seems to have, can itself be seen as born of bad luck. Right? The Vatensdal chieftains are all born charming and handsome and idealized. Yeah. It's lucky for them, right? but not Gretter. He's born with a terrible disposition. He's born with freckles. Right? He's <laughs> unlucky in his birth. Uh, and despite all this, he just goes ahead and gets things done in spite of fate working against him. Okay, first of all, you're saying freckles are an unlucky thing, which I think uh, my wife would take offense at, and many other. Well, I'm people saying that the saga planet. seems to indicate that that's a, oh. a marker. I see. I'm sure plenty of Icelanders have freckles, though. I don't know if they would consider themselves unlucky. Yeah, the ones with Irish blood. Which... <laughs> so the second thing is you're bringing fate into it, which I think is a mistake. You're trying to make Greta into some sort of beleaguered Hercules or Odysseus, tossed about by fate and unfortunate circumstance, and I don't think that's the case. Now, that's pretty impressive company to be keeping, sure. But I think there's something to that. I don't think he's uh, keeping that company. I disagree. Hercules mm. and Odysseus are victims of higher powers with cruel intentions. I don't think they create the situations that they find themselves in. And what makes them heroes, in my opinion, is their ability to get out of the terrible circumstances created around them and created for their destruction. Gretir whines and complains and bullies and forces his way into terrible circumstances, even when he's told not to. Uh, and he also hurts farm animals, I'll add. So <laughs> hard, hardly the stuff of legendary heroes. Now, I can't agree. Um, even classical myth recognize that fate and personality are intertwined, that the mm. greatest heroes contained in themselves the seeds of their own destruction. Right? I mean, where does Nemesis come from? Uh, but let's take your Hercules example. So Hercules is a hero because he struggles and often succeeds in the face of opposition from Hera. But if Hercules is bullied by the gods, he is at the same time his own nemesis. He becomes emblematic of self-destructive tendencies. Hercules is quick-tempered, easily tricked into acting against his own self-interests, perpetually forced to undertake difficult tasks brought about by his own reckless approach to life. In many respects, he's actually actually very similar to Gretter. He even does some pretty awful things to animals, if we want to take it in that direction. Okay, well, what about Odysseus? Well, Odysseus has to find his way home despite the offended gods standing in his way. And in the one epic, there's actually one epic where he's ultimately killed by Telegonus, uh, the, fa- the son that mm. he fathered on Circe, really? and abandoned, which is a pretty straightforward way of being punished by your past sins. There's a remarkably compelling quality to the man who succeeds when the whole world and his own personality is against him. And to me, that's Gretter. All right. Oh, now I may accept a vague association with Hercules, but not Odysseus. You're definitely stretching there. Um, I mean, you're quoting. S- well, you started the comparison. I'm merely trying to justify it. All right. All right. Well, we've gotten way off track. <laughs> so we're supposed to be talking about how Gretcher got his sword and we haven't even gotten him to land yet. He's still on the boat. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't think we finished debating this issue, but we probably should get beyond the first chapter of the section we're covering at some point. Yeah. So uh, where the heck were we? I don't even remember. So Gritter and the crew are clinging to the wreckage of their craft. A nearby landowner named Thorfinn rushes out and manages to save the ship's crew and its cargo. Uh, Thorfinn turns out to be a pretty nice guy who likes entertaining guests. That's a good thing because the crew needs to stay with him for a week while the cargo dries out. 
when they're ready, they all head south looking for opportunity, but Gretter is done with these hardworking merchants. Uh, instead, he decides to take it easy with Thorfinn for a while. And like everywhere he goes, Gretir does no work. Uh, he does eat and, and enjoy being cared for, however, which I think kind of annoys Thorfinn. But time passes and Gretir gets a little bored. And when Gretir's bored, well, it's usually dangerous for everyone else around him. If only there were an insanely dangerous and ridiculously showy exploit for him to perform. Ah, but of course there is. You see, Gretter <laughs> makes friends with a nearby farmer named Alden and spends a lot of time on that farm, trying to get away from work at uh, Thorfinn's, no doubt. Mm-hmm. Now, one day he sees flames shooting up on the nests below Alden's farm. He's told that these are coming from a haunted burial mound of Carr the Old, that's Thorfinn's father, and he decides to explore it for himself in the hopes that treasure might be found inside. Alvin tells him that Carr's ghost has haunted the island since his death, chasing out all the other people so that Thorfinn now had sole possession of the island. It actually sounds a little bit like uh, Thorolf Twistfoot and Arnkel from Erbegis Saga. Yeah, we said before that this author was very well read in the sagas and liked to take his favorite characters and bits or episodes from each mm-hmm. when writing Greta's Saga. But whatever the source, the thought of all that gold in the mound inspires Greta's curiosity, as mm-hmm. it would. Uh, Alvin warns him against poking around the mound, fearing that it will anger Thorfinn, which I have to say is probably a pretty reasonable fear. Right, uh, but does Gretir care? Not a fig. Not a fig. Uh, he drags <laughs> Alvin out to the mound, <laughs> digs through the turf. a good expression we don't use enough anymore. That's right. Not a fig. A fig for thee. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Whatever happened he, to the figs? God only knows. Jesus, ah, now I'm hopelessly lost. So what happens? <laughs> so he drags Alvin to the mound, digs through the turf, Breaks open the roof beams, and then Gretter climbs down using a rope. So Alvin is supposed to watch the rope and then pull Gretter up when the mound has been sufficiently explored and looted. Right. So his his backup plan is a farmer who's already practically whittling himself in fear. This should end well. Well, it does. Don't worry, John. We'll tell that to Alvin. When Gretter lowers himself down, he immediately sees that the mound is full of treasure. But that's not all. Mm-hmm. While he's admiring the piles of gold and silver... He bumps into the back of a chair. Oh, no. Yes, a chair. But uh-huh. there is a man sitting in the chair. And he's also dead, so there's no need to worry. This <laughs> oh, is Carr the Old, father of Gretir's host, Thorfinn. Yeah, no need to worry. Uh, didn't we just say this dead guy has been terrorizing the region and scaring everybody away? Well, Gretir's not worried about that, so why should we be? I mean, let's go with him. Run Trust away, Gretir, run away. Uh, well, because while Gretter's gathering all the treasure and piling it up around the rope, Carr the Old rises from his chair and attacks him from behind. He would, wouldn't he? he of course he would. There's a violent struggle as the two wrestle with each other throughout the burial mound, crashing into everything and making a ton of noise. Now, this noise is echoing up through the hole that Gretter dug into the mound. Uh, and sitting mm-hmm. right by that hole next to the rope is poor frightened Alden. Uh he hears these noises, and now he's fairly certain that Gretir has been killed by the mound dweller. So he leaves, just leaves. He just leaves. <laughs> yeah. He, he pees himself and leaves. <laughs> Way to support your friend, Alvin. There's a reason we don't have a saga about this guy, I guess. Yeah, well, can you blame him? I mean, after hearing all that noise and feeling the ground quake beneath you, would you jump into that hole to see if I was dead or alive? Yeah, fair point. It's probably dark down there. Yeah, it's very scary. <laughs> uh, but I want you to know I would definitely go down and find you because it's just the kind of guy I am. Yeah, sure you are. Uh, yeah, I am. Now, it looks bad for Gretter at this point, but obviously he can't die yet. 
No, no, no. Uh, there's so much saga left to cover, and we have to say we can't cover this much uh, many times again. So he eventually okay. turns things around and manages to knock the undead car over backwards. And before it can get back up, he chops off Car's head with Atartangi. Only the now, yes. only the saga now calls the sword Yokel's Knot. No, we are not digressing over the name of the sword. But I, I think there is a cool story there, John. No, I said no. But I do want to say that. Um, no, 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 no. You wait, wait, wait. Little, you get to digress, but I don't? Yeah, that's the way this is playing out, yes. Uh. Uh, now, chopping off a corpse monster's head is pretty universally recognized as an effective deterrent, and of course has the additional benefit of killing things that aren't undead as well. So you don't have to make a split decision at the moment. But mm-hmm. in Scandinavian tradition, there's an additional element in case you want to humiliate the corpse. You stick its head up against its buttocks. <laughs> well, you make that sound a little bit silly, but it's it's one of the surefire ways to make sure that the corpse doesn't rise again. Staking the headless body is another one, and uh, so is burning the corpse. Well, that's my point. Gretter has options. Sticking Carr's head in his butt is just insulting. <laughs> Speaking of digressions, hmm, uh, you might have noticed some similarities here between Gretter's fight with Carr the Old and Beowulf's fight with Grendel's mother. If so, you aren't the first to notice that. We'll speak about these parallels and many of the sources or the other sources and analogs found in Gretchen's saga when we do a saga brief on the subject after we finish with the judgments for this saga. Yeah, it's going to be really fun digging through all that scholarship and all the theories about how the saga came together. It will, but for now, we've got to dig Gretchen out of this hole. Yeah, so Gretter's stuck in the mound with no one to pull him out because obviously Alvin ran away in fear as soon as the fight started. Uh, So not a good Norwegian companion, Alvin. Uh, (laughs) But but Gretter has the strength to climb out of the mound on his own because he's a big, burly, strong guy. He's known as Gretter the Strong, by the way, so it shouldn't be a problem. By the time he carries the pile of treasure back to Thorfinn's house, he's pretty stiff and a little bit cranky. Well, I mean, Gretter's always at least a little bit cranky. Yeah, but not too cranky to get off a good line. When he enters the hall, Thorfinn looks at him sharply and asks what he had to do that was so important that kept him from returning home at a decent hour. It was almost like a, a grumpy parent waiting up, waiting up for a teen. Right, and with a dramatic flourish, uh, Gretter dumps his treasure all over the table and says, There are many little matters that turn up in the late evenings. <laughs> Very, very impressive. Now, the the last thing he sets down is Gretir's favorite bit of treasure. It's a gorgeous cutlass, a sword without peer in Gretir's eyes. And Thorfinn's also quite taken with the cutlass. Yeah, uh, it turns out that the short sword is an heirloom in Thorfinn's family. And when he asks, uh, where'd you get that sword? Gretir offers him this verse. I managed to get the sword that makes men's wounds grow in the mighty dark mound. Wave fire armor. The ghost fell, and the precious fire of the din of the armor of helmets, dangerous to men, would never pass far from my hand if I owned it. He's sounding more and more monstrous when you're doing that. Well, there's something to that. Oh, so it's intentional. (laughs) I got it. Now, why do you keep calling it a short sword? Why do you keep calling it a cutlass? Hmm, good question. I asked first. (laughs) I guess this this is one of the more innocuous examples of something that we have talked about before. We are presenting these sagas using English language translations for various reasons. The chief one being that it makes the text more accessible for an English language audience. Right. Now, when we started, we briefly considered reading quotations in Old Norse and then in translation. But that was kind of clunky and, and sort of slowed things down. 
Yeah, it did. But, uh, but it is important that we occasionally investigate what translating a text means to its readers. So once in a while, John and I read different translations of the saga just to keep us on our toes. This time out, uh, John read the Bernard Scudder translation from the Complete Sagas of Icelanders, while I read the Everyman translation by Anthony Falks. Right. Now, there aren't generally a lot of massive differences between the translations, but you do get a lot of little differences. Like, for example, the translator's best guess as to what kind of a sword is being described in this passage. So, feel mm-hmm. free to decide for yourself. Is Greta running around Iceland with a cutlass or a short sword? In other words, is, does he have a kind of cavalry saber-type weapon or a more Roman soldier type of weapon? Exactly. and I like the saber idea better. Well, fair enough. Um, and now, of course, in my head, it's a sort of Roman-style short sword, because that's what I read. Uh, Obviously. Now, either way, he hasn't got ownership of the sword yet. Right. Thorfinn may be pleased that Greta has bought him the treasure, but he's not willing to give him the sword right away. No, uh, I have to say, Thorfinn's pretty calm about Greta having raided his father's grave, though. Well, there is a lot of treasure to be claimed. And mm-hmm. besides, it doesn't seem like he liked the old man very much. Uh, no, no, and that's actually one of the reasons he doesn't want to give Greta the cutlass. He actually says, You will have to achieve something which has the makings of greatness in it before I will give you the cutlass. For my father never let me have it in his whole life. Yeah, a little bitterness there. Uh, so mm-hmm. Thorfinn claims the treasure and the sword. And what does Gretir get for his troubles? A uh, growing reputation and a place to stay for the winter. Ooh, good for him. <laughs> no treasure, nothing out of that thing, does he? <laughs> Why not just take the treasure, he's got the strength, and then go make a life for himself? That would be the way to go. Well, because that would be a terrible saga. He's got to earn that sword now. All right, then. Let's, uh, let's do that bit, then. Gretir and the Berserks. We have made graves by the sea for twelve warfire trees. Alone I was able to bring them all without hesitation, sheer death. Any deeds that one can do, splendid, well-born gold willow, will be counted worthy if ones like this are thought mean. As we said before, Grettir really wants that cutlass. But Thorfinn keeps it near him and even sleeps with it at night, if you can imagine. Well, knowing Grettir, that's probably not a bad idea. But Grettir usually gets what Grettir wants. Uh, yes, but he does. But to do this, he's going to have to perform a great deed. Now, fortunately for him, Norway's currently having problems with berserks. Oh, that is convenient. Yes, it is. And and once again, we run into something that the saga author has likely lifted from another saga. Here we get the story about how Earl Eric gathered all of his leading men together to discuss the problem of dueling. Now, at that time, berserks and highwaymen were taking advantage of dueling laws uh, by challenging noblemen to duels for the sake of money, for land, and women. Mm-hmm. Uh, with a council of the country's leading men, including Thorfinn, Earl Eric outlaws dueling in Norway. And I think it's important for this saga's themes to note that he also outlaws robbers and berserks from causing breaches of the peace. Right. In other words, brutish behavior just isn't going to be tolerated in a more civilized Norway. 
Which doesn't bode well for our friend Gretter. No, it doesn't. And I I think it's one of the themes of this text that, you know, like we said before, Gretter is a man out of place in his time. Um, This kind of behavior that used to be okay simply doesn't stand anymore. Well, and he's, he's running out of places to go, right? He's running out of places where he can get away with behaving the way that for him is the only way to behave. Uh, yes. So exactly. uh, at Yule, Thorfinn travels to one of his other properties to host a big winter nights party. But his wife and adult daughter Woo-hoo! stay at home because the daughter's ill. Uh, Gretter stays home, too, because he's not really a sociable kind of guy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you don't say. <laughs> and it's lucky that he's there, though, because it isn't long before a boat arrives with a dozen massive warriors led by two berserk brothers named Thorir Paunch and Ogmund the Evil. Now, these are Halogalanders, uh, infamous for raping women, plundering farms of men loyal to Earl Eric Hakunderson. Uh, and Earl Eric has recently outlawed them. And mm-hmm. as I said, uh, Thorfinn was one of the men who'd advised the Earl. So these guys are probably here looking for a little bit of revenge. Right. And we should say it's actually relatively unusual for a saga writer to explicitly state that raiders were known for abusing women. Uh, even here, we're only told that mm-hmm. Thor and Ogmund take women. Uh, and then, quote, keep them for a week or two and then return them. Uh, but the implication of what happens during that couple of weeks is pretty clear. And we're meant to understand that these are real villains. Like, these are criminals. Absolutely. And as you said, these are massive men. So Grettir decides that the best thing to do is to welcome the brothers cheerfully. He greets them and tells them that they've arrived at the perfect time to get their revenge on Thorfinn, since he's not at home, but his wife, daughter, and farm here uh, are unprotected. <laughs> Even even Thor and Ogmund are actually a little surprised by Gretter's willingness to betray his host. Right. Uh, but they're more than willing for Gretter to show them into the farmhouse. Uh, Gretter keeps up a line mm-hmm. of chatter while he ushers the men in and orders Thorfinn's wife to be polite to her new guests. You can just imagine how happy Thorfinn's wife is with Gretter's handling of these brigands. I mean, these guys really are about the worst people we've mm-hmm. met, and he's treating them like honored guests. Yeah, I mean, they're pretty clearly meant to be just vile. So... Uh, while mm-hmm. the women of the house are hiding in a back room and loudly cursing Gretter as a traitor, Gretter offers to fetch yeah. ale for the men and to help them hang up their wet clothes. And and if it weren't clear already that Gretter's up to something, that should probably be a pretty big clue. Mm-hmm. He's like, hey, come on in. Make yourselves at home. Let me help you out of that wet armor. And, and oh, let me get you something to drink that'll dull your senses. Come, come. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah. But, you know, Thor and Ogmund are more than willing to believe that no one man could possibly hope to fight their whole company. Right? These are 12 berserks. Sure. Uh, and the men mm-hmm. are so impressed with Gretter's handling of the situation that they actually invite him to join their band when they leave. Yeah, well, they're a bunch of marauding troublemakers with no respect for others. Uh, I mean, you can see how Greta would fit in. Well, it's kind of a perfect match. I have to say, like Thorfinn's wife, you're judging Greta a little harshly. A little harshly, huh? Well, of course, Greta isn't interested in partnering up with a bunch of outlaws. He is, however, clever enough to not admit that openly. Instead, he says, that's for you to decide. Oh, I should do his little monster voice, huh? Yeah. That's for you to decide. But I don't treat everyone as equals. That is, that's your, that's your monster voice. That's, uh, you know, I got a little <coughs> thing in my throat. Yeah, it's hard. Very slick. Um, <laughs> Gretter is the master of disguising an insult as a, in a compliment. Uh, so Gretter gives mm-hmm. the raiders copious amounts of drink, then offers to show them Thorfinn's storerooms while the women get ready for bed. Now, there's another threat made here in a joking manner about raping Thorfinn's wife, which means that Gretter needs to act quickly. And he does. Uh, he leads the berserks to a large storehouse, invites them inside, 
and then locks them in and rushes back to the main house. Yeah, and this isn't one of Greta's more ornate plans, but it does work. The raiders assume the door shut on its own, and they ignore it while looking through Thorfinn's stuff. And that's a big mistake, because Greta rushes back to the house to prepare himself for battle. Right. Now, I think one of the really appealing things about Greta as a saga hero is how well the author conveys the sense of barely controlled panic that Greta often seems to feel in moments of crisis. Right? He's not a cool, calm, collected guy. He's rushing around, grabbing armor, and saying things like, Are there any suitable weapons around? And, Now everyone must do what they can. And, It's now or never. It's pretty clear he's making it up as he goes along. Really? You think so? Yeah, yeah, no, I think... Greta hasn't got hmm. the poise of a Snorri Gothi, or the self-assurance of someone like Eyjolf Skala Grimson, right? Or mm-hmm. even the high-handedness of some of the warrior poets. You really feel like he hasn't got the least idea of how he's going to get out of this alive. And there's really something about that kind of half-assed approach to violence that's a little bit lovable. Well, you might be right, but but I read the moment a little bit differently. I mean, to me, this whole episode is designed <laughs> to reveal Greta's cleverness, so he can't be just bumbling or, or even panicked. Uh, And when he asks whether there are any useful weapons about, I think it's pretty clear that he wants to know where the cutlass is or the short sword. (laughs) Uh, And uh, and this also serves as a not so subtle reminder to the reader and I think our listeners today that this episode is really about Gretir accomplishing a great deed to earn the sword. Absolutely. We've got to be reminded of the sword. Right. But I still think there's an element of panic and chaos in his approach, not just here, but throughout the saga. Uh, with the permission of Thorfinn's wife, Gretter enters Thorfinn's bedroom, takes a good helmet, a coat of mail, a barbed spear, which had belonged to Carr the Old, and, of course, the short sword. Or the cutlass. Right. And since Thorfinn's wife has finally caught on to Gretter's plan, she gets four farmhands to go with him back to the storehouse. Right. Four useless farmhands. Yeah, uh, they're not going to play a right. very big role. Now, by this time, the raiders have figured out that they were locked in, so they, they smash through a wall into an attached outhouse. And, of course, that's not doing much for their good mood. Uh, and just as Greta returns with his <laughs> weapons, he sees all dozen of the berserks pouring out of the outhouse door. Uh, like I said, the plan barely yeah. works. Yeah, it, it's almost too late. But Greta charges in with the spear and runs Thorir Paunch through. And get this. Ogman the Evil, his brother, is pushing Thorir forward so hard and down the steps with such strength that he actually forces the spear to come out between Thorir's shoulders and into his own chest. And so both Berserk brothers fall down dead. Beautiful. Right. Well, absolutely beautiful. It is, but it's it's kind of like the uh, the joke about a hundred lawyers at the bottom of the ocean. Right? It's a good start. Uh, but <laughs> th- after that, it's just a brawl. I mean, there's still ten of these guys. But most of well, them... that's kind of what surprised me. Why would you start by killing the two leads of the two lead villains? Why well, not start by killing two other guys? Because they're the first two down the trail. <laughs> of course. Of course. It's kind of anticlimactic, though. I'm sorry. Uh, now, most of the berserks had left their weapons back in the room where they were drinking, but there are still ten of them. And they're mm-hmm. grabbing logs and whatever else they can find to fight with. But Gretter's laying into them with his weapons, and he manages to kill four more of them before the remaining six fight their way to the boathouse and arm themselves with longship oars. Now, these are big men, and they're accomplished warriors, and they're able to really get some blows in with the oars, so Gretter is taking injuries, uh, but he's able to kill two more men, and then the last four break and run. And that's that's eight down out of twelve. That's pretty impressive, mm-hmm. uh, particularly since yeah. the four farmhands ran away as soon as the fight started, and Gretter is doing all of this single-handed. 
But what's even more impressive is that Gretir chases after the four survivors yes. <laughs> despite his injuries. He runs down two of them, and then there's another long brawl before they're killed too. Um, now it's dark, and Gretir's exhausted and injured. He doesn't feel like looking for the last two men. So mm-hmm. instead he returns to the farm, where Thorfinn's wife begins showering Gretir with the praise and compliments that he deserves. Right, and I really I love Gretir's response to this. I think I'm much the same person you were heaping abuse on earlier this evening. It, it's not that he's wrong, <laughs> but I think that line sort of tells you all about Gretter. He he really is not willing or not able to play social games. And he's a little nonplussed about other people's reactions to him. Yeah, uh, you get the impression that he's not all that self-aware. Mm-hmm. Doesn't follow social cues even slightly. Right. Anyway, the, the next morning, a large party of people from all over the island go out and they search for the two remaining raiders and they find them dead from their wounds lying among some rocks or something, mm-hmm. uh, which is great because now everyone's safe and sound and Gretir has earned himself a legendary reputation. Right. And this this prompts his almost taunting verse to Thorfinn's wife about his accomplishment, which we started the section off with. We have made graves by the sea for 12 war fire trees. Alone, I was able to bring them all without hesitation, sheer death. Any deeds that one can do, splendid, well-born gold willow, will be counted worthy if ones like this are thought mean. Yeah, he's basically saying here, there's no way Thorfinn will withhold that sword from me now. Well, uh, no, it's absolutely true. Uh, Thorfinn's wife is actually forced to admit, well, you certainly have few equals among men now living. And after this, Gretter is allowed to sit in the place of honor, and he's treated as a hero until Thorfinn comes home. And, of course, when Thorfinn does return home and sees Thor Paunch's boat beached next to his house, he understandably goes into a panic. And Gretter, who's not overly fond of Thorfinn in the first place mm-hmm. and hasn't suddenly transformed into a less of a jerk just because he's a hero, uh, doesn't <laughs> let anyone go to the boats to relieve Thorfinn's mind. Poor right. guy. And, well, and, and, of course, it works nicely. Uh, Thorfinn even says... I have a suspicion that something must have happened here, that I would have given the island and everything on it for it not to have happened. <laughs> Be careful what you wish for, Thorfinn. <laughs> it might come true. Uh, Gretter pretty clearly wants to drive home that feeling of panic so that he can gloat all the more, or at least leverage mm-hmm. uh, he, the relief. But eventually Thorfinn's wife gets his permission to greet her husband. She runs down to the shore and tells him what happened. Yeah, nothing really penetrates Gretir's indifference to what people think of him. I mean, even when Thorfinn hugs Gretir, offers him a lifelong friendship and swears to help Gretir if he ever needs it, and then gives him free reign of anything in Thorfinn's possession, Gretir's only response is to thank him and say, I would have accepted your offer earlier, too. <laughs> I love that line. There's something almost charming about what a complete bastard Gretir is. Yeah, I mean, there's there's some scholarship out there that attributes Gretir's behavior to a a kind of arrogance or conceit, but I'm not really sure that fully captures his motivations. No, he's a socially problematic figure. He he adheres to a fairly strict and even admirable moral code, but without in any way observing the rules of social behavior that would allow others to celebrate his achievements. Instead, Mm -hmm. he's kind of trapped in a cycle of events in which he's barely tolerated by anyone if they haven't directly benefited from his campaign of violence against evil men. Which is what makes him a complete, though sometimes charming, bastard. <laughs> he, right. he may save the day occasionally, but you're going to hate him while he's doing it. Uh-huh. He's hardly the kind of hero I'm looking for. Well, at least not yet. Right. Uh, but Gretir and Thorfinn do become good friends now. They even spend the winter together with no problem. Uh, Wait a minute. Shouldn't Thorfinn just give Gretir the sword as soon as he learns how Gretir saved his wife and household? Well, that would make sense, but no, he doesn't. Now, you would think that 
that that would be cause for some serious trouble that winter. Shouldn't Gretter be rebelling and well, slicing think, up his favorite but, horses? <laughs> uh, but it's not. I mean, presumably Gretter just knows that you know it's an inevitability at this point. Uh, in the spring, Gretter decides to head out and see the world. Uh, and before he goes, Thorfinn gives him Carr's short sword or cutlass. Hey! Which Gretter will carry for the rest of his life. Good for you, Gretter. Enjoy that cutlass or short sword. You earned it. Gretter meets Bjorn and, and a giant bear. Grr. I was able to defeat the Green Tooth. There was talk about that once. The harsh-minded one tore hard the mighty long cloak from the man. The audacious Ringbalder caused this, but now he shall pay for it. All right, uh, now we're getting into the good stuff. Gretter's fight with the Norwegian bear is one of the more famous episodes in this saga, and Beowulf fans will recognize a number of similarities here. Yes, but again, we will not be highlighting those similarities right now. You keep you gotta saying You've got to tune that. into the saga brief. I do, because this is all of it here. Uh, you got to tune into the saga briefs for Gretter's saga uh, for all those fun bits. Uh, for now, we're just going to focus on what happens in Gretter's saga. All right, fair enough. Uh, the poem we used at the opening of this section sums up this uh, episode in Gretter's life quite nicely. It does, but out of context, it probably doesn't mean much to our listeners. So let's explain what happened to Gretchen after he earned the cutlass, or as uh, you prefer to call it, the short sword. Uh, shouldn't this sword have a name? Yeah, you would think it would, but uh, I don't recall it ever getting anything but cutlass, which is kind of boring. I suppose it's just called Gretter's sword. I mean, you know, it kind of becomes famous because he's the one who wields it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Still Gretter not, earns- not exciting. No, I know. Uh, Gretter earns quite a bit of fame for his defeat of the Berserks, and people throughout Norway are happy to welcome him as a guest. He ends up settling for the winter at the farm of a merchant called Thorkel in Hologaland. Now, Thorkel and Gretter actually get along quite well, which is rare, uh, but things mm. aren't so great between Gretter and a relative of Thorkel's named Bjorn. Uh, Bjorn is a bit of a pompous ass who walks around with a posse of yes-men to stroke his ego. Uh, and it doesn't take long for Bjorn and Gretir to butt heads. It's not really surprising. I mean, Bjorn sees himself as the champion of Thorkel's house. Gretir is a man on the rise, so he probably views Gretir as a threat to his position. Well, while they're learning to get along, or maybe not get along so right. much, something strange starts happening out in the countryside. There's a fierce brown bear, and it's left its den... And it's savagely attacking all the men and animals in its path. This bear is particularly terrible. It's running around, tearing men's sheep to pieces and killing anyone who tried to stop him. And why, you ask, is a bear running around wild and grumpy in the winter? Uh, because he was rudely awakened by the noise being made every night by Bjorn and his companions near Thorkel's Hall. Hmm, this sounds very familiar. It does, sensitive it? ears. Yeah, I wish I could remember where I read something like this before. But apparently I'm not mm. allowed to discuss that, so oh well. Nope. Uh, so, being the wealthiest man in the region and with the most to lose, Thorkel suffers the most from the bear's attacks. Now, what Thorkel needs, what he needs is a hero. Mm. A hero with the strength of 30 men. Someone to teach this bear a lesson. Well, that's certainly what he's thinking. Um, apparently he's read the same text I have. Uh, Thorkel <laughs> gathers a troop of warriors together, and they track the bear to a cave set neatly in a cliff face by the sea. There's a very narrow path approaching the cave mouth, 
but it's clearly dangerous with a sheer drop promising certain death to any who step wrong. Now, Bjorn uh, boasts that they shouldn't have too much trouble solving the bear problem now that they'd found the den, saying, Now we shall see how we namesakes get on together. <laughs> Which is meant to be a clever play on words, since Bjorn's name literally means bear. Mm-hmm. And Greta responds well to this. What does he say? Uh, nothing. Uh, in fact, the saga just yeah. says, eh, Greta went on as if he hadn't heard what Bjorn had said. Nice. Well played, Gretter. Now I can just see him smirking and rolling his eyes behind Bjorn's back every chance he gets. I know. Uh, can, can we get a, like a young Val Kilmer to play Bjorn in the movie? He's, what? He's like perfect for this part. Uh, sure. We'll just steal Doc Brown's DeLorean and return to 1985 to pick up Val Kilmer. Excellent. Let's do that. Now, uh, Bjorn really wants to take out this bear on his own and gain all the glory for himself, but he quickly finds that it's not so easy. Every single night, when the rest of the men are preparing for bed, Bjorn sneaks out and hunts the bear. Yeah, well, unsuccessfully. Well, it never works out the way he hopes, of course, because really Bjorn's a bit of a clown. Yeah, he kind of is. Uh, now, one night, he gets to the den early and prepares to ambush the bear as he comes out by hiding near the narrow path. Like the legendary Sigurd waiting for Fafnir, Bjorn lays in wait. Uh, but unlike Sigurd, Bjorn gets sleepy and is soon dreaming of the hero's reception <laughs> that he's going to get back at Thorkel's house uh, when he finally returns with the bear. See, that's no way to become a legend. No, you stay awake. Right. And, of course, the clever bear knows that Bjorn is out there waiting for him. And he decides mm-hmm. to chill in his cave for a while. Uh, Outsmarted by is, a bear. Absolutely. Once Bjorn is fast asleep, the bear creeps out, spots Bjorn, and... Probably has a good chuckle as he walks right over to where Bjorn is sleeping. Now, I can understand Bjorn getting tired, but you'd think that if you were preparing an ambush for a killer bear, that you'd sleep at least very, very lightly. But but Mm -hmm. no, not not Bjorn. He's just snoring away as this bear walks up to him. Right. And and the bear, I have to say, seems to understand the humor of the situation. He hooks his paw underneath the shield Bjorn is using as his bedtime covers and flings it off the side (laughs) of the cliff. And this this proves to be a rather rude awakening for the slumbering Bjorn. He pulls his thumb out of his mouth and runs screaming <laughs> back to Thorkel's house. Uh, now, of course, this is a great source of shame for Bjorn because as the self-proclaimed champion of Thorkel's household, he should be able to handle a bear. Uh, instead, he's been made a fool of by an animal. Uh, <laughs> of course, what makes matters worse is that his best buddies have been following his movements and know all about his failure to get the bear. They even mm-hmm. send someone to go get his shield in the morning so they can use it to make fun of it. Oh, I really like that detail. <laughs> I mean, this is a very genuinely human moment in the saga, and it's very, very funny. Yeah, I, I imagine life is pretty unbearable for Bjorn after this. Yeah, I would I would normally complain about your puns there, John, but that, that one was brilliantly played. I, I'm going to applaud oh. that. Good job. Well, thank you. Well, bear with me. I'll try a few more. Now I just want you to die. That was a quick turnaround. Well done. <laughs> uh, all right. What so, are your fastest? <laughs> around Christmas time, Thorkel puts together yet another bear hunt. Uh, he's got seven people with him, including both Gretter and Bjorn. Uh, mm-hmm. Because it's cold, Gretter is wearing a big fur cloak, which must be quite a sight. Now, as the men prepare to enter the bear's den, Gretter carefully folds his fur cloak up and sets it aside. Well, I mean, he couldn't bear it if the cloak got dirty. Uh, <laughs> Am I right? Uh, see, we barely got the story rolling again, <laughs> and there you go with another pun. Listen, you you cannot complain about my pun while still inserting another lame pun of your own. 
I just did, and you loved it. Now, uh, let's get our bearings no. here and get on with the story. No, 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 stop. Hey, That's enough. W- when you've had enough, just give me your sign. No. Uh, so <laughs> Thorkel and his men attack the bear with spears. <laughs> but it's, <laughs> but it's tough to be going smacked. because th- there isn't much room to maneuver in the cave. Uh-huh. And, and Bjorn <laughs> is right there in the thick of it, charging to the fore, taking on that bear. Uh, no, not exactly. He's just sort of cheering everyone on from behind. Oh, it's pathetic. <laughs> I mean, as if it weren't bad enough, he slinks away while the others are fighting, and then he grabs Gretir's fur cloak and throws it at the bear. <laughs> well, maybe, so let's give him the benefit of the doubt. Maybe he was trying to confuse the bear. I doubt sure it. Sure he was. I doubt it. Uh, anyway, nothing seems to work, and they fail to kill the bear. Uh, while mm-hmm. they're preparing to leave, Gretor notices that his cloak is missing, and when he looks around, he sees the bear is now snuggling with it like a blankie back in the cave. <laughs> and he's not too happy, uh, and he knows exactly who did mm-hmm. it. But Gretor seems to know better than to start a fight with Bjorn right in front of Thorkel, his host. Uh, is is Gretor learning his manners, John? This seems well, unlike him. He He does seem to be a little bit more savvy, at least, about where and when to act out. Uh, in this case, mm-hmm. Gretter finds an excuse to linger behind while the other men make their way back to Thorkel's house. Uh, Bjorn mocks Gretter for being vain enough to make another attempt on the bear by himself, since he didn't do very well with all the other men helping. But mm-hmm. Thorkel chides him, saying, You two are certainly not heroes in the same class, and you'd better not say too much about him. Yeah, that's actually very good advice, Bjorn. I suggest you listen to Thorkel and keep your mouth shut. But uh, Gretter does, after hearing this, go back to the cave. And this time, he actually puts forth some effort in the attack. He's got Jokulsnot, a.k.a. Atartangi, in one hand, and Kar the Old's cutlass slash short sword hanging from his other wrist by a loop. Now, Gretter's ready for action, and so is the bear. So when the bear lunges in for an attack, Gretter dodges the blow and strikes at the paw with Jokulsnot. He managed to sever the paw off just above the claws, Oof. but the bear immediately strikes again with its other paw, and pretty soon the two are wrestling around on that narrow, very dangerous path. Right. Many, many animals were harmed in the making of this saga. Um, yeah. It's it's really not the ideal location for a wrestling match. Uh, remember that no. sheer drop we talked about. Gretter is now on his back. He's holding the bear's head back to protect himself from its bite, but struggling to maintain his hold on the animal. And just as his strength is about to give out, they get too close to the path's edge and tumble down the side of the cliff. I knew that was coming. Now, mm-hmm. if Gretter hadn't wet his pants yet, uh, I'm sure Aww. he must have just let a little bit out at this point. It's pretty no, scary no, no, stuff. No, 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 not Gretter. Uh, he's actually renowned for his strong bladder. Oh, is that what his nickname, Gretter the Strong, is actually referring to? Is that what uh, it is? No, not exactly, no. Oh, uh, okay. So, Gretter and the bear are tumbling down the cliff, dry pants, I want to make clear. Uh, toward the deadly <laughs> rocks at the bottom. Uh, because the bear is heavier, he ends up on the bottom when they hit the rocks. That's that's rather a fortunate turn for Gret here. Yes. The, the bear's got to be dead after that fall. It's so steep. Well, you'd think so, but he's only very badly wounded. Uh, but that's when Gretter's idea to hang the cutlass from his wrist comes in handy. Yeah, it seemed a bit odd to me that he'd want to go into battle with a sharp sword dangling from his wrists, but now mm-hmm. he's got the cutlass with him after the fall... Uh, assuming he didn't impale himself on the way down with it. Right. Well, he didn't plan on, you know, diving down a cliff with the thing. No. Uh, Gandalfing the bear, as it were. Uh, and now with the sword in his hand, he's able to stab the bear through the heart. Yeah, this is quite a victory for Gretir. Now, unfortunately, when he goes back to the cave to claim his fur cloak, 
he finds that it's been torn to shreds. Aww. So, poor Gret here. But he puts it on anyway. <laughs> which well, I, I know where he can find a brand new fur cloak just waiting to be taken. <laughs> Apparently he leaves that, but he, he right. does pick up the bear paw that he cut off mm. as a trophy of his success. Right. Now, when he returns to Thorkel's hall in the tattered cloak, everyone laughs. And I have to think that Gretter, who has a flair for the dramatic, has put the cloak on for exactly that reason. He wants everyone to think he's failed. I, yeah. I think you're right. He's quite the showman. And, and this works. They're all astonished when he then puts the bear paw on the table. Now, Thorkel suggests that Bjorn apologize for the cruel things he said about Gretir, but Bjorn just says that he'll have to wait a long time before he ever apologizes. Uh, and this sets off the real conflict between Bjorn and Gretir. Uh, Gretir composes a mocking poem about Bjorn camping out by the bear's den each night, but Thorkel doesn't want them coming to blows, and he offers to pay full compensation on Bjorn's behalf if Gretir will keep the peace. Uh, Gretir refuses to accept money from Thorkel, but agrees not to harm Bjorn for now. Right. And that for now is really important because Gretir is not going to forget Bjorn's boasts and insults. And he gets his opportunity for revenge the following autumn when Bjorn's ship is returning from a trading mission in England and passes by a ship that happens to be carrying Gretir. That's just unlucky for Bjorn. Um, no, yeah, who's unlucky now? Right, exactly. Uh, Gretir approaches Bjorn on the beach and says, it's time to pay for the insults. Yeah, and he's not interested in taking money for the insults. He says he wants mm-hmm. to find out which one of the two is stronger. But uh, Bjorn's not quite so confident now without Thorkel around to protect him. He tries to play it off like there was no serious insult offered and that it's all in the past and he's willing to pay whatever amount Gretter thinks fair to settle things once and for all. Yeah, but Gretter's not going to accept that. Uh, nope. He composes a verse, and this is the verse that began this section. I was able to defeat the greed tooth. There was talk about that once. The harsh-minded one tore hard the mighty long cloak from the man. The audacious ringbalder caused this, but now he shall pay for it. I do not think I am often too boastful in competitive speeches. Hmm, that's a nice one. And I, and I think it summarizes this episode nicely. And all we've got to do to finish this section off is to settle the Bjorn issue, which Gretter is very eager to do at this moment. Right, but the problem is that Bjorn isn't. Uh, no. He again offers money to settle the issue, but Gretter says that he's not interested in taking money from someone who'd been so disrespectful to him. There's mm. really no way out of this for Bjorn. No, and contrary to the bear fight, this one this one's very, very quick. Right, and I'm sure you're all worrying about whether or not Gretter loses. So does he lose? No, he... No, he doesn't lose. He doesn't even get a scratch, but Bjorn <laughs> does. He gets quite a few scratches. Right. In fact, he gets enough scratches to make him stop being alive. Uh, and now Bjorn is out of the saga. I'm sorry, enough scratches to stop being alive? Yeah, he it's died. It's an odd circumlocution. From... Uh, he is. He's <laughs> out of the saga. saga-like, I think. Yeah, there you go. Uh, but Gretter's revenge against Bjorn will cause some serious ripples in Norway, making life more difficult for Gretter while he finishes up his outlawry. Uh, yeah, we're going to skip over several chapters here where Bjorn's brothers ambush Gretir. Just know that it never seems to work out, and one by one, Gretir kills Bjorn's brothers. And this leads to some complications for Gretir in the Norwegian court, where Bjorn's family has some influence. But with the help of Thorfinn and a man named Thorstein Drummond, Gretir survives his outlawry in Norway and is able to return to Iceland unscathed. Did you say Thorstein Drummond? Why, yes, I did. Now, uh, we did tell you to remember that name in our previous episode. If you're a careful listener, then you will remember who he is. If it's been too long, well, 
Are, are you seriously going to just leave them hanging? No, no, no. I just wanted to give the thinkers out there a moment to get their answers in. Thorstein Drummond is Grezier's half-brother, the one who was left in Norway with his mother's family after Asmund made for Iceland. Uh, there you go. Uh, he'll be popping up again at some point, so keep an eye out for him. Uh, or your ear. Either way, we're going to skip over some more adventures here for the sake of time, but we encourage you to check them out for yourself. I mean, basically, you're missing out on the author's efforts to insert Gretter into the action of other sagas and get him interacting with their characters. In short, the Foster Brothers from the aptly named Foster Brothers saga uh, cause a bunch of trouble, and Gretter gets into ball with Cormac of, well, I, well, I think you can figure out what saga he's from. I think you remember right. that guy. Um, now, skipping all of this is hard. And it means we're li- missing a lot of Thingman name drop opportunities, which is a shame. It's sad, I know. And, and they're all yours. And so I'll, I'll name them for your, the sake of your ego. There's, uh, Thorstein Kugeson from the Saga of Bjorn, the Champion of the Heat at All People. Ding! And Skafti Lawspeaker, uh, a bit player that you wind your way into taking from the Saga of Gunlog Serpentongue. Ding! Oh, thank and, you very um, much. Uh, and Cormac, uh, Cormac from Cormac Saga. Ding! Ding! Uh, now, I believe that still puts me in the lead for Thingman name drops. Ooh, big deal. I don't even know if those numbers are accurate, and I'm not going <laughs> to check. So let's move on. We're, we're going to be running long on this episode, and we haven't even done the best part yet. Uh, let's do it. It's time for The Curse of Glob. Now, this is probably the most famous section of Gretir's saga. And deservedly so. Uh, there's some really great writing here, and the events of this section help Help to shape our understanding of Greta as a person. So the, the narrative begins by shifting our focus to the large farm of a man named Thor Hall. I think every man we've encountered so far is named Thor something. <laughs> we have uh, Thorfinn, <laughs> Thorkel, and Thor Hall. So the three Thors. Now, Thor Hall is a wealthy landowner with lots of livestock. But unfortunately for him, the farm he owned was haunted making it next to impossible for him to keep the shepherds around. That is a problem. Um, he tries to solve it by seeking advice from Skofty Lawspeaker, my yes. thingman. The, the solution, according to Skofty, is to take on an ill-tempered Swede named Glom, <laughs> who's having trouble keeping work in Iceland. Oh, thanks, Skofty. Sounds like a great idea. <laughs> Remind me not to come to you for advice. Right. Well, well Thorhall isn't too worried about it, and Skofty assures him that Glom is one of the bravest and strongest guys around. He's not likely to be afraid of a few ghosts. Yeah, true. And and it's true. He's not. Uh, Glom's a bit of an unusual character, which is something that Thorhall spots right away. The saga describes Glom as heavily built and strange in appearance, with eyes dark and wide open, with wolf gray hair. Sounds a bit ominous. Sounds a bit crazy. But Skofty's right. <laughs> He's got those uh, eyes that when, are too far open, huh? <laughs> when Thorhall mentions that the farm is haunted, Glom just says... I'll find it this boring, though. I don't have a voice for him. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'll find it yeah, boring. No, he's got to sound like a tough brute, not like a right. a slimy narfy. <clears throat> Hang on. Uh, when Thorhall mentions that the farm is haunted, Glom just says, I'll find it less boring that way. What? No, that's not acceptable either. <laughs> then you do he's- a voice. You tell me what does it sound like. He should sound bold and brave and a little bit troublesome. And crazy is the point I'm trying to make. Uh, you're, you're overdoing crazy. You've got too much crazy. Let's, <laughs> let's pull it back. Let's pull it back just a little bit. All right. When Thorhall mentions that the farm is haunted, Glom just says, I'll find it much less boring that way. 
There you go. That's the one. So they agree to terms and Glom arrives on the farm around winter night, which is in October. He comes at the appointed time and takes over shepherding the sheep on the farm. And he's pretty good at it. But everyone on the farm finds Glom quite uh, repulsive. I mean, he doesn't go to church. He doesn't socialize. He's uncivil and awkward, which is quite... We've already run into a character like this. Yes, we have. He's another one of those guys you don't want around. Right, which, of course, makes him a great shepherd because he doesn't Mm -hmm. need to be around people. That's right. But he does need to be able to interact with them when opportunities arise. And he also needs to participate in the culture. But he rejects all those customs on the farm, and he mocks their Christianity as being superstitious. You're uh, talking about his refusal to fast on Christmas Eve, right? Yes, that's right. That uh, the, the morning of Christmas Eve, he wakes up early and demands food. Uh, and when Thorhall's wife tells him that it's not their custom uh, and that they like to fast on Christmas Eve, he just says, You go in for a lot of superstitions that I see no point in. Now get me my food. There you go. It's almost starting to sound like Brian Doyle Murray. All right. Now, Thorhall's wife is upset by this, telling him that something bad will happen if he eats. Uh, he should listen to her. Well, but he doesn't, of course. No. Uh, he just bullies her into getting him some food and then chows down. Now, admittedly, that's a bad idea. Uh, when mm-hmm. he goes out into the fields, the weather grows dark and snow begins to fall. A blizzard moves in and lasts all day long. People could hear Glaum shouting to the sheep early in the day. But by evening, there's no sign of him anywhere. And because the storm is so violent, they can't go out and look for him until the following day. But by then, it's too late. They find the sheep wandering all over the place and no sign of Glom. At some point in the search, they find an an area up in the mountains with trampled snow everywhere. It looks like there was a violent fight there because huge stones were strewn about and the earth was torn in some areas. There are also huge tracks, likely belonging to the evil creature that had been haunting the farm. And alongside the tracks is a blood spore. The men conclude that Glam must have killed the monster. But sadly, Glam didn't survive the battle. Nearby, they find his body. He was dead and blue and swollen big as an ox. Well, understandably, uh, that kind of nauseates the men, and they're Mm -hmm. afraid to touch him. But they make the effort to get him into church for a burial. Uh, but the task proves too difficult, and so they're forced to leave him in a gully. But at least the evil creature is dead, so that's good news for Thorhall. Yeah, only it's it's not good news at all. I mean, they try to move his body again the next day. Uh, this time they hitch oxen up to it, but he doesn't budge, doesn't move an inch. Yeah, this, again, this is sounding a lot like what happened with Thorolf Twistfoot's body in Erebigus Saga. Yeah, I think so too. In fact, I, I, I kind of feel like this whole episode is inspired by that scene in Erebiga Saga, but uh, mm. I can't prove it, so. No, I think it's a reasonable assumption, though. Uh, the author has just finished working two other sagas into his narrative, so there's no reason to think that he wouldn't be lifting from Erebiga Saga here. Well, things get worse. On the third day, they bring a priest with them, but this time the body's gone. Glom's nowhere to be found. Hmm. This freaks the priest out, and he refuses to help anymore. He goes home. Right. But, of course, the corpse is just hiding, which is disturbing. (laughs) It's weird. (laughs) Enough. Uh, As soon as the priest goes away, they find Glaum's body. But just as before, they can't move it an inch. So eventually, they just pile some rocks on top of it, call it a cairn, and leave him there. And that proves to be a terrible idea. I mean, if these people had mm-hmm. read their sagas, they would know that this is a big problem. And, and sure enough, it's not long before Glom is haunting the farm. And at first, mm-hmm. he just wanders around the farm, scaring people. 
But then he starts riding the buildings at night, straddling the ridge and kicking the roof with his heels, making a terrible racket and frightening everyone away. And things eventually get so bad that most of the people abandon the farm and avoid going into the valley altogether. Well, and with good reason. I mean, who would want to hang out with Glom? No, not he's, me. He's essentially taken possession of the farm at this point. Uh, but the odd thing about Glom's power is that it seems to wane during the spring and summer when sun is at, the sun comes up at its highest. Mm-hmm. Now, with Glom's hauntings growing less and less violent in the spring, Thorhall attempts to settle his farm again. I can't imagine thinking that would be a good idea, but I, I guess if you're a Thorhall and you've invested so much in the property, it would be hard to abandon. Sure, no true. Um, and it's not like Glom is killing people or anything at this point. Yet. Yeah, mm-hmm. not at this point. Thorhall gets a new farmhand and shepherd named uh, Thorgout. Just like Glom, he's a tough guy who isn't threatened by the prospect of tending sheep with an evil spirit nearby. And things do go pretty well for him. In the autumn, the hauntings start to get more violent again, but Thorgout handles it very, very well. Then things start to turn in the winter. On the morning mm-hmm. of Christmas Eve, in fact, Thorgout heads out to tend the flocks. Now, did Thorgout eat his breakfast or is he fasting according to custom? I'm going to guess that he's fasting according to custom because the saga doesn't say anything about him arguing with Thorhall's wife. But Mm -hmm. it doesn't really help. Just like before, Mm -hmm. it starts to grow dark early in the morning and snows start to fall and get heavier. See, this doesn't sound good. And the people of the farm recognize a pattern here. They're very worried, but there's really nothing they can do. The weather's just too bad. And sure enough, Thorgaut does not come home. The next day they search for him and, of course, they find his body near Glom's cairn. And the poor guy isn't just dead. His neck was broken and every bone in his body smashed. It's a gruesome (laughs) sight for everyone involved. Well, especially for Thorgout. Not really. He can't see anymore, so there's no sight for him to see. (laughs) Fair enough. Um, Now, they're able to move Thorgout to the church and give him a proper burial, so he's at least not going to cause any trouble. Mm -hmm. But Glom is still out there. And the saga makes it very clear that he's invigorated by this killing, right? He's had some fresh blood. Uh, for the rest of the winter, he wrecks havoc on the farm, killing everyone he comes into contact with, including most of the livestock, Thorhall's favorite herdsman, and even his daughter. And the scene in the barn where the herdsman's found smashed to bits is particularly awesome. And when they go in to look for him, they find cows inside the barn screaming and goring each other. And, and the saga author says very uh, dryly, Thorhall didn't care for that very much. I can't imagine why. Yeah. I mean, it does sound like quite an inconvenience, in fairness. Oh, definitely. Now, now, what Thorhall really needs is a hero. Someone with the strength of 30... Now, you, 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 did, you did this already. Yeah, I know. I, I just thought it was a cool way of introducing Gret here into the scene. Well, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but Gretter does have a knack for this sort of problem, so it's fair He does. Enough. Uh, and it's not long before he hears about the trouble on Thorhall's farm and decides to make his way over to try his hand at wrestling Glaum. Before he goes, before he goes, his mother's brother, Jokul, tells him that this is a very, very bad idea and that his mm. kinsmen need him and that nothing good will come of the journey. But Gretir is intrigued by the scary monster and decides to seize the opportunity to enhance his reputation a little bit further. Right. Now, by this time, Glom has basically taken over most of northern Vatnsdal, and he's threatening to expand his reign of terror further. So, if Gretter doesn't handle the situation, Iceland could be doomed. Ooh, that's a nice way of putting it. Mm. Now, when he gets to the farm, Thorhall welcomes him in and says, Don't expect to leave with that horse, because 
At the very least, Glam's going to smash that thing. <laughs> Poor horses in this saga. I know, really. But Gritter isn't bothered. Uh, he says, There are plenty of horses. Whatever becomes of this one. <laughs> I, I love his nonchalant confidence. Uh, at this point in the saga, yeah. he has all the makings of a really great hero. Yes, but the effects of this little visit are far-reaching, and they certainly affect his ability to become that great hero. The first night mm-hmm. goes pretty well, though. Thorhall insists that Glam will visit that night, but the house remains quiet the whole night. And when they go outside to check on the horse that was guaranteed a death, they actually find it right where they left it. Right, but it smashed all the pieces, right? Nope. It's perfectly alive and happy. Maybe a little bit hungry, so huh. they give it some oats. And this well, all sure. makes Thorhall very, very happy. And so he wants Gretter to stay another night. And once again, Glom doesn't touch the house. This time when they go out to check the horse, well, he's smashed. Ah. Every bone in the horse's body is broken, which seems That's to be more Gl- like it. Glom's calling card. Right. Now Thorhall is afraid again because he knows that Glom is playing with them. Mm-hmm. He he tells Gretter to flee, but Gretter says, mm, I cannot take any less in return for my horse than a sight of the villain. And he's going to get that chance on the next night. Right. Now, when night falls, Gretter sets himself up on the platform opposite Thorhall's bed closet. He covers himself completely with a fur kind of poncho type thing, leaving just a little space in the head hole to look out of. And if you want to get a sense of just how violent Glaum's attacks have been on the farm, uh, listen to this description of the hall as Gretter looks around. All the door frame had been broken away from the outer doors, and now there was a hurdle fastened across it and fixed rather roughly. The end partition of the hall had all been broken away, the one that had been in front of the doors, both above the beam and beneath. All the bedding had been thrown about. It was not very inviting there. <laughs> No kidding. I mean, it sounds miserable. <laughs> I can't believe people are actually living or sleeping there. Now, Glom keeps Gretir waiting for some time that night, but just before midnight, Gretir can hear the massive bulk of Glom climbing the roof. Now, John, what's with Glom riding the roof like a horse every night? I, I can only imagine how ridiculous this must look from afar. Well, <laughs> fair enough. Uh, but underneath, inside the house, it must make an awful sound. Uh, can you imagine this massive man beating on the roof of the house all night with his heels and hands, howling and screaming? Mm. It's not a pleasant thought. No, not at all. But I'm imagining how it would look from another building. And I'm going to maintain that Glom must look extremely silly while riding the house. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> but he doesn't look silly for long. Glom climbs down and forces his way into the house. Gretter is actually taken aback by just how huge Glom really is. Mm-hmm. Uh, the monster, meanwhile, spots the furry heap on the platform that is Gretter and makes his way over to investigate. Gretter sees Glom coming, but he remains quiet and waits patiently for the right moment to strike. Mm, I've got to say again, this sounds extremely familiar. Yeah, and you know you're not the only one to say that, right? It's, but it's about to get even more familiar. Glom reaches out and grabs the furry object. But much to his surprise, the poncho doesn't move, so he pulls harder. But Gritter's braced himself against the base of the platform, and he's doing his best to stay in place. And then on the third try, Glaum pulls even harder. This time, the poncho comes toward him, and Gritter comes with it. And the two have a little tug-of-war with the poncho, until it finally <laughs> tears in two. 
I just love this part. I mean, it says that Glom looked at the bit of poncho that he's holding and wonders who's been pulling the other end so hard. And I could just see the dumb look on his big blue face as he's like staring at the poncho, <laughs> staring at the, the, the shadow in the darkness. Right. right. Uh, but in the time it takes him to sort of stare at this peach of poncho in his hand, Gretter leaps on him. He moves under Glom's arms, taking him around the middle in a giant bear hug, squeezing with his hands together against Glom's back. And Glom is both surprised and a little frightened by this turn of events, but he's mm-hmm. no pushover. He manages to fight Gretter off. The two begin wrestling all over the house, knocking down pillars, smashing everything in their path. At some point, Glom makes a move to go outside, but Gretter knows that if Glom gets out into the open, then all is lost. So he digs his heel in and pulls harder against the monster. And well, I'll, I'll just read what happens next because it's hard to describe. Glaum put on an extra burst of strength and jerked Gretter toward himself when they got to the porch. And when Gretter sees that he cannot hold back with his feet, he does two things at once. He leaps as hard as he can into the villain's embrace and kicks back with both feet at a stone part buried in the ground that stood on the threshold. That's pretty impressive. Now, I'm not sure exactly about the physics of that description, but I get the idea. He's just going with the energy being used against him, which is just mm-hmm. basic jujitsu. And and it works really well because Glom loses his balance and falls backwards with Gretcher on top of him. And you don't want Gretcher on top of you. Trust me. Right. No, absolutely. Um, and we have to read this next part because it's really – it's the best paragraph in the saga. And it's it ranks up there with some of the best stuff in saga literature. Yes, it does. Uh, there was a bright moonlight outside and gaps in the heavy cloud. Sometimes it clouded over, and sometimes it cleared away. At the moment Glaum fell, the cloud cleared from the moon, and Glaum glared up at it, and Gretter himself has said this was the only sight he ever saw that made him afraid. Then he felt so weakened by everything, his weariness, and seeing Glaum squinted him fiercely, that he was unable to draw his short sword and lay just about between life and death. And that's when Glaum speaks. He looks at Gretter and tells him that he could have become twice as strong had he not sought out Glom. But because he did, his strength will remain the same as it was that day, which he admits is still plenty strong. He also tells Gretter <laughs> nice that he will live a miserable life, guilty of crimes and deeds of violence, and that everything he does will turn out bad. Gretter's going to be cursed to live a life out in the open and by himself. And lastly, Glom says... That his eyes will always be before Gretir, those wide open, frightening eyes, haunting mm. him and forcing Gretir to seek the company of others in fear, though that will only bring him more misery. Yeah, as far as curses go, that's that's about as bad as it gets. Really? Uh, you probably haven't read Stephen King's Thinner. <laughs> I have not. Uh, <sighs> as soon as Glom is done speaking, Gretir regains his strength seizes his short sword, and decapitates his enemy. Mm. And in keeping with his own idiosyncratic tradition, he places the head near the monster's buttocks. Thorhall then emerges from the broken timbers of the house and praises both Gretir and God for the defeat of Glaum. Together they burn the corpse, gather the ashes in a bag, and then bury those as far away from pastures and the paths of men as possible. Very, very smart. And so Gretter's fame increases as the story of his heroism spreads throughout the land. Hooray! Yay! Gretter's Outlawry Despite his fame, uh, Gretter is kind of on a dark path now. Yeah. Um, he returns to Vatensdal and to his friend Thorvald's home. 
The two men talk about Greta's experience with Glaum, and Greta explains that he's been feeling grumpier than usual lately, <laughs> which is quite an accomplishment, really. Uh, he's also become so afraid of the dark that he couldn't go anywhere on his own after sunset because frightening apparitions begin appearing to him and things seem very strange to him once the sun goes down. Mm-hmm. His friend Thorvald is sympathetic, but he warns Greta to be very careful. Which is easier said than done. Now, it's it's around this time that King Olaf Haraldsson takes the throne in Norway and Earl Svein is on the run. Now, Gretzer heads to Norway after he hears that Olaf is looking for Scandinavia's most remarkable men to join him in service. And certainly, Gretzer would be a good candidate for that. Well, and Gretzer's not the only one. Uh, one of Gretzer's enemies, Thorbjorn Ferdlong, is also heading to Norway seeking opportunity. Hmm. And the two men end up booking passage on the same ship. Now, I'm, I'm shocked that you aren't uh, going to explain the nickname <laughs> there, but I'm sure we'll get to it eventually. Well, for, I can do that. Uh be, I mean, I was going to save it for the judgment section, but all right. Uh, Fair to long translates as a uh, far traveler. There you go. That's walker. enough. Now it's purely coincidence. <laughs> this, <laughs> That's uh, no this, fun. yeah, the, this, uh, meeting is purely coincidence, which plays into that stuff about Greta being unlucky. I guess, uh, that little curse is mm-hmm. going to really screw up his trip to Norway this time. And it starts right here. Yes, it is. Um, when Thorbjorn gets to the ship, he starts immediately insulting Greta and his father, Asmund. Uh, Asmund's gotten pretty old by now, and he's been bedridden with sickness. The Thorbjorn starts telling the men preparing the ship that old Asmund had died choking on smoke from a hearth fire like a dog. But it was no great loss, he said, because Asmund had already become old and senile. Oh, that's not very nice, Thorbjorn. It's not. No, and Gretcher's standing right there, and he actually responds this time. He says, I prophecy for you, Ferdlung. But you won't die by smoke from your fire. And yet maybe you won't die by old age either. That, that's a pretty clear threat. And Thorbjorn should be yes, wary of getting on board that ship with Gretir. But uh, Ferdalon continues to taunt Gretir anyway, saying that Gretir didn't act so tough when swords were flailing in the skirmish with Cormac. Something we skipped. Now, Gretir responds at this point with a brilliant poem. Uh, a tongue too long in talk has a bowslinger often, so some suffer heavy vengeance for it. Many a wound snake wall wielder has committed less offense and got death by it, Ferdalong. I wonder if he, he says bowslinger there because he's uh he's talking about a guy shooting a uh, you know bow and arrow, which in uh, for Vikings and for the Icelanders right. maybe is a more cowardly position, right? Well, and it's a uh, you know the sort of stings, right? These little sort of these little stinging darts rather than actual blows. Yeah, yeah. Uh, now we should say Thorbjorn isn't impressed by the poem or by the threat, but Greta insists. My prophecies have not taken long to mature up till now, and that won't change anytime soon. And that's when he strikes at Thorbjorn with his short sword. Mm-hmm. Right now, Thorbjorn attempts to block that blow. But the sword slices right through his arm above the wrist and then clean through the neck uh, so that his head flies off. And the merchants who are looking on said that Gretir had a heavy hand. <laughs> well, no kidding. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and the merchants don't think it's a big deal, really, because Thorbjorn clearly had it coming. Oh, definitely. Um, so they just sort of pack the ship, clean off the blood from the deck and 
head out to see King Olaf in Norway. There's another man named Thorir from Avaldalr in northern Iceland, and he wants his sons to meet King Olaf as well. Thorir is a wealthy guy, and, and he's also a powerful and leading man in the district. Right, and he also happens to know King Olaf. Which is so, fortunate. Right. Uh, and he sees an opportunity now that Olaf is king to help his sons, Thorgir and Skeggy, to advance in rank. Right. So he sets up a ship and sends them off to join King Olaf's service. Uh, they have little trouble along the way and they arrive very safely in Norway, which is why they're not saga leads. Right. <laughs> um, the, the weather turns, mm, though, once they arrive. So they set up camp near the harbor in a small shelter that was uh, built there for travelers to wait out bad weather. Right. Now, Gretter's ship also arrives in the area, but only after the bad weather has started. Their journey is much rougher. And they barely get to shore with their goods. Mm-hmm. We're really seeing Gretter's bad luck coming through here. Uh, now, unfortunately, they have no way to make fire and warm up. So things are looking really bad for them. In the evening, they see a large fire on the other side of the channel from them. This is where uh, Thorir's sons are, are camped. Now, because the weather is so bad, they agree that it's too dangerous to launch a ship. But they convince Gretter to try his hand at swimming over and taking the fire himself. Yeah, I'm not sure why Gretter would agree to this, but... He, I guess he likes a challenge. So he yes. strips down to his underclothes, covers himself in a cloak because Gretchen loves cloaks, and then he leaps right. into the channel and swims over to the other side. There he finds a building full of men just enjoying themselves. Now, now this always strikes me as an interesting moment in the saga. John, has it ever occurred to you that Gretir is now in the position of Glom or Grendel or any other monster stalking the building from the outside? At night? I mean, it's very, huh. the parallels are obvious, yeah. I think. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. I like that. Um, it fits in with Gretter's increasing sense of isolation and alienation from society. Yeah. And that's going to be a major theme of the third part of the saga. Well said, John. Well said. Well, whether Gretter's a monstrous hall invader or not, <laughs> it's not going to turn out all that well. Uh, inside the building are Thorir's sons, Thorger and Skeggy, with ten other men. They're all having a great time and they're warm, which is what Gretchen and his companions want. Now, rather than mm-hmm. knock and announce himself in a civilized manner, Gretchen just walks in. And the problem is that he's been swimming in icy water and standing in the freezing cold. So his cloak and hair are covered with ice. And this mm-hmm. makes an already huge and imposing Gretchen look absolutely terrifying. The men in the house actually think that they're being attacked by a troll. Well, it's the only reasonable conclusion. Yeah. I mean, no uh, one would just so, enter. Right. So everyone leaps up and hits him with whatever they can find. Um, it's not really a problem for Gretter, and he easily knocks them back. They they aren't really armed. They're just sort of grabbing things around the room and hitting them with them. Mm-hmm. Uh, then some of the men grab torches and try to beat Gretter with those. Uh, now, this proves to be a terrible idea because the fire catches on some straw they had piled up, and the whole building begins to go up in flames. And the men just keep attacking the monster in their midst. Now, Gretter manages to grab a torch from one of them and flees, which is what he came for anyway. Yeah, and his companions, when he gets back, they're excited to see him and they're overjoyed that he's got the fire. So they're quite happy and they heap praise on him all evening. Uh, in the morning, they decide to go over and speak to the men that had the fire, probably maybe to have a good laugh over the whole thing. What a silly encounter we had last night, hmm? Uh, right. But the, the building's gone. They they only find ashes, a great heap, and piles of human bones all strewn about. So they're looking oh at this and they think either Gretir has lied to us about how he got the fire or something went horribly wrong after he left. 
Right. They, they don't put much thought into it before concluding that Greta simply attacked the men and burned them inside. Right. And thus committing the greatest of crimes. Yeah. And that's a, there's a fairly obvious flaw in their logic, which is that Greta didn't have any fire until after he'd been inside the house. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so how could he have burned the house first? Uh, but this misunderstanding ends up causing Greta all kinds of trouble. His crime is reported to King Olaf and his, Chances of making a name for himself in Norway are all but dashed. Yeah. You, now, do you see, this is what I mean, by the way, about his luck. Well, yeah, th- this is a good example of the, of the bad luck situation. He's definitely unlucky here. And when he finally gets to King Olaf, he's put on trial for this burning. And Olaf is mm-hmm. pretty understanding, as a good Christian king would be. Uh, but he wants Gretchen to clear his name through the ordeal by iron. Uh, which is a medieval judicial practice where the defendant carries a hot iron over a certain distance and then the wound is examined and uh, determination is made about the individual's guilt based on whatever criteria had been set by the court about what the wound should look like. Right. Now, now Greta agrees to undergo the ordeal because he knows God will reveal his innocence. And he really wants to join King Olaf's service. Mm-hmm. He even fasts in preparation for bearing the iron, and Greta is not generally known for his adherence to religious uh, observations. No, yeah, I think this is really uh, interesting. Yeah. Uh, then on the day of the ordeal, when just about everything is looking up for Greta, right before he is to take hold of the iron, a young boy leaps out of the crowd and starts screaming at Greta, calling him a criminal and a mermaid's son, and sticking his <laughs> fingers out at him and making faces. All right. Now, you can't really expect Greta to put up with being called a mermaid son, can you? I mean, that's the last no, thing you want no. to be called. And, right. And he doesn't put up with it. Uh, remember, Greta had said before, he's quick to anger and in an even worse temper since his fight with Glaum. Mm-hmm. Rather than bear those jibes with patience, Greta lashes out and claps the boy under the ear, just hard enough to knock him unconscious and maybe kill him. Uh, well, so much for that ordeal and for his chances of building a relationship with King Olaf. I mean, the weird part about mm-hmm. this episode is that no one can identify that boy. I mean, he seems to have come right. from out of nowhere, which leads several people to conclude that he's actually an evil spirit that was sent to ruin Gretir's ordeal. Now, it doesn't matter where the boy is from, though, because Gretir lashed out and everything right. fell apart. King Olaf then says he believes Greta to be a worthy and strong man and very likely innocent of the the burning, but he's proven himself in this instance to be too rash. And so he gives Greta permission to winter in Norway, but also insists that he has to leave for Iceland as soon as spring comes. Right. And while he's waiting for spring to come, Greta has another adventure in Norway with a berserk, but we'll save that one for best bloodshed. Um he spends the winter with his half-brother, Thorstein Drummond, instead. Thorstein Drummond, everybody. Hope you're paying attention. Mm-hmm. Now, there's only one detail here worth sharing, but it's an important one. Uh, Andy, how do you feel about a little Saga Thing Theater for this one? Ooh, Saga Thing Theater, you say? Oh, we haven't done that in a while. Sure, let's do it. <laughs> I, I went from uh, American to English to what Irish. What happened there? <laughs> I don't know. Oh, Faith McGora. <laughs> Uh, yeah, let's do it. Um, who am I supposed to play? Um, Thorstein Drummond, of course. <laughs> of course, Thorstein Drummond. Uh, yeah, I figured you'd take Gretchen. All right, let's do this. Okay, so I'll set the stage. We're in the bedroom of Thorstein's house. It's early morning, and Thorstein has awakened to see Gretchen's bare arms laid out over the bedclothes. Mm-hmm. Uh, I guess he sits there admiring them for a moment until Gretchen wakes up, at which point he says... I have seen your arms, kinsman, 
and I am not surprised at the heaviness of some of your strokes, for I have seen no one's arms that compare with yours. You should have known that I would never have accomplished the deeds I have done if I weren't stoutly built. I would have preferred it if they had been more slender and a bit more fortunate. Well, the saying is true. No man is his own creator. Show me your arms, then. And then uh, Thorstein Thorstein takes his shirt off and shows him his arms, and he's revealed to be rather skinny and weak. Mm. I've seen quite enough. Your ribs look like hooks, and I don't think I've ever seen another pair of tongs like those arms of yours. I can't imagine you have the strength of a woman. That may well be, brother, but you can be sure of this, that these slender arms of mine will avenge you, or else you will never be avenged. Well, how can we tell what will happen in the end? But it strikes me as pretty unlikely. And scene. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Yes, yes. <laughs> I love the uh, the contrast in voices there. <laughs> <laughs> Like a wayfish boy standing next to a frogman. <laughs> anyway, yeah, I I actually find this scene really touching, uh, despite the the weirdness of the voice there. Uh, I I think because mine or yours, yours. <laughs> Gretir sounds odd to me, just freakish. He's just as God made him. <laughs> yeah, he can't. God, a man doesn't make himself, as he said. Yeah. But I, you know, I think Thorstein shows his wisdom here with that line about wishing Gretir's mm-hmm. arms had been smaller. I mean, Thorstein clearly loves his half brother and, and he senses that his life's not going to be an easy one in part due to the strength that he has. Yeah. And I love how Gretir seems resigned to his fate here. Mm-hmm. Uh, he doesn't seem to think there's any hope for him, which of course, I mean, it turns out he's quite right. Uh, things are about to get much, much worse because back in Iceland, everything's falling apart for the family. Asmund, Gretter's father, finally succumbs to his illness. Uh, meanwhile, his brother Otley, uh, who's a promising leader in the district and does very well for himself, uh, runs into trouble. A man named Thorbjorn Oxmite decides to avenge Thorbjorn Ferdelong. And that's uh, Thorbjorn Ferdelong, remembers the guy that Gretter killed before heading out to Norway. Right. Uh, since Oxmite can't get at Gretter while he's in Norway... He stalks his brother Otley instead, picking fights with him at every turn. But because Otley's done so well for himself, he usually escapes with little to no damage. Uh, in the end, Thorbjorn resorts to ambushing Otley at his home, running around in the morning, knocking in the doors, and then hiding. And when he finally lures Otley to open the door, Thorbjorn thrusts his spear through Otley's stomach. Otley uh, looks down and delivers a very serious candidate for notable witticism. Uh, they're very fashionable now, these broad spears. <laughs> and then he falls dead on the threshold. Oh, man. that is such, It's a tragic death, but such an excellent delivery. <laughs> I mean, if that doesn't win notable witticism, I might be very angry. Anyway. <laughs> so Thorbjorn Oxmite, uh, he, he runs away. Uh, and he doesn't actually have to deal with the consequences of his actions anytime soon. Because there's no one in Gretchen's family old enough to prosecute him for the crime. I mean, there's... Uh, Gretchen's right. little brother Elugi, but again, too young to to really pursue this case. Right, his child. Yeah. Meanwhile, the news finally comes to Thorir of Guard about Gretchen burning his two sons in Norway. Remember, this is the wealthy man who's got a lot of influence uh, in nor- in the north of Iceland. 
Now, Thor is going to use mm. his power to force a suit against Grettir before he can even come to defend himself. So poor Grettir is just out in Norway and being brought to trial. Right. Now, being a powerful Goathi has its advantages, obviously. Mm-hmm. Uh, even though people don't think the suit is fair, they can't stop it from going forward. Uh, Scofty Lawspeaker, my thingman, uh, says this is an ill deed because a story told by one person is only half told. I love that line. That's a wise man right there. Hey, yeah. John, at my school, they did like little posters for the library and they took a picture of me. Yeah. Um, and I gave them that, that quote uh, <laughs> to put on the poster. There's a picture <laughs> of me holding the book, The Sagas of the Icelanders from uh, Penguin. And uh, it says nice. up there, uh, a story told by one person is only half told. Very, very witty, wow. clever stuff. So when uh, when you were asked to come up with a line that encompassed the sagas and meant sort of what the sagas were all about, you chose a line from one of my thingmen, did you? I will edit that out. You. <laughs> <laughs> There's no way I'm putting that in there. <laughs> oh, come on. <laughs> Maybe. That's not right. That's Maybe. not right. You can't do that. It's hard to say. <laughs> no one really knows. <laughs> Take your time. Anywho, nothing can stop Thor from pursuing his case against Grettir. And so, Grettir's given full outlawry, which is why oh, he's boy. in the outlaw saga category. Uh-huh. <laughs> Thor then places a very high price on Grettir's head in the hopes that someone will go out and kill him. And then uh, Thor runs home, of course. <laughs> and that's where uh, that's where we're going to have to leave things for this episode. I think we've gone on long enough. Yeah, um, we'll be hearing more from Thorbjorn Oxmite and from Thor of Garth. But uh, for now, we want to thank you for listening to this rather lengthy walk through the middle of Gretir's saga. We're going to have to leave uh, Gretir with uh, the news of his father and brother's deaths and his own outlawry awaiting him in Iceland. Mm. We've got to cover all of his outlawry in just one more episode. And then we've got this long epilogue with uh, with a special certain someone. Um, th- there's a lot of saga left. How are we going to do this? Well, we'll manage it somehow. Uh, but until then, you can keep up with us on Facebook and Twitter. Uh, it'll be a couple of weeks till our next episode because I'll be traveling. Uh, I'll actually be up at Lonson Meadow next week. So uh, look for pictures of the Vikings' first settlement in North America on our social media sites soon. Oof, I, I really, really wish it had worked out that we could have done that trip together. As do I. Okay. I'm going to offer you just this one bit of advice, John. Oh, what's that? If you see a uniped, I want you to run. <laughs> <laughs> I'll want to get a picture first. <laughs> no, no, no. Don't get a picture. You run. Now, I, I got it on very good authority that unipeds in that region of North America are very aggressive. So you don't want to mess around with them. Just run. Well, I do have plenty of fat around my entrails. So <laughs> yes. I should be all right. <laughs> all right. Well, thanks. Listeners, if you enjoy what we do, please support us by posting a review to iTunes. It does help in more ways than you can imagine. So please log on. Mm-hmm. Do what you've got to do, and you'll never have to feel guilty when we say this again. (laughs) (laughs) I think that about does it. Yes, it does. We'll record the final part of our Gretter Saga summary after John gets back from Lonsall Meadows. I'm looking forward to it. Until then, bye for now. You know, Gretter's voice is based on a, like a Sesame Street uh, cartoon from like 1972, I think. Uh, it's a fly and a frog next to each other, and there's just a voiceover saying, What would happen if a frog had a fly's eyes? 
and a fly's <laughs> wings and a fly's body. I, I can only assume there were a lot of drugs being done in the studio that day. Uh, I wasn't a kid in 1972. I wasn't even a thought, so I wouldn't know that. 